was really good at filling in the blank with conjugated verbs. It, I was really good at that. Unfortunately, the first time I found myself in a taxi in another country, I realized I couldn't talk about anything relevant. That lament might sound familiar to a lot of us who took a language course when we were in school years ago, but what makes it noteworthy is that the person who said this to me, Susan Davis, is now a world language teacher. Now hear Susan tell us about her 17-year-old daughter's experience after she completed a three-week course in Arabic. Her daughter was sitting in an airport. She had never spoken to a native Arabic speaker before outside of the classroom. So she started texting me, Mom, there's somebody and he's speaking in Arabic and he's speaking so fast and I just wonder where he's from. And I said, well, ask him in Arabic. And her daughter did ask him in Arabic. spoke English, but the reaction that she got from him because she addressed him in his own language was completely different. When she texted me back, she was so excited that she had pulled this off. It was all caps. Oh, mom, he's from Egypt and he has daughters. And oh, wow, I did it. It was fantastic. Something's happened to language classes between the time Susan took them and her daughter did. Who are we going to hire? The student had two years of French, or are we going to hire the bilingual who's coming from either a bilingual home or from Canada or some other country? You don't just walk in a back room and make a back room deal. You need to know the people and the culture in order to understand what it is that they truly want and what you can offer. These are two more world language instructors, Thomas Sauer and Dessa Dawson, that you just heard. What these educators and others that you'll hear in this episode will tell us is how language classes have changed since a generation ago. They're not your uncle's language class anymore. And the goal may surprise you, because as Susan says, It's not about perfection. Here's why from Aviva Kadosh, another of our world language teachers. People that have to be perfect are less likely to say something because they might not be perfect. So just how are students learning now? Levine, the host of America the Bilingual. With me today is associate producer Becky Bray Rankin, who is a French teacher herself. Becky, one of the reasons I really like this episode is that I've kind of lived it. Well, I know from what you told me that when you had to take German in college, you weren't exactly perfect, if that's what you mean. Far from perfect, but did I ever tell you about the intermediate level Spanish class I took at Harvard? I thought you did your undergraduate work at UC San Diego. I did. Harvard was much later, like 40 years later. In 2015, I was on a fellowship there for a year studying bilingualism and wanted to find out how they were teaching languages to the undergraduates. Since you were already learning Spanish on your own, you must have been excited about actually taking a class. More like terrified. I had hoped to just sit in the back of some classes and observe, but the faculty member in charge, Adriana Gutierrez, told me the best way to learn how they did it at Harvard was to take a class myself. How did that go? Well, as you might guess, I was the oldest person in the class by decades. The other students were these smart, motivated freshmen and sophomores with quick minds and lots of energy and dedication. I figured I had one advantage over them, however. What was that? I showed up on time. 
I've been teaching long enough that I started out teaching with the ALM. We had reel-to-reel tapes and a film strip and kids memorized dialogues. But ALM, the audio-lingual method that Aviva Kadosh once used and the memorization that went with it is a thing of the past. Times have changed. The tools that we had at that time for teaching languages were the best tools that we had. We know better now and we do better now. And I think that has changed what we do in um, helping students acquire the language. That's Bill Anderson, another of the global language experts we talked to. And by the way, do check out our notes for this episode where you'll find the impressive credentials for all of these educators. They are some of the leading names in their field. Becky, you've been teaching for how many years? 10 years. Just what is it that's changed so dramatically in the classroom today? How are students now learning languages? The word you'll hear again and again from language teachers is proficiency. So proficiency has replaced perfection. Yes, but let's have some of our teachers put that into context. Proficiency is the main goal. Dessa Dawson was a longtime Spanish teacher. There are strategies in the classroom. It means that grammar takes a different role. It's not that you don't want to be correct when you speak, but that's not the major concern. The major concern is that you be able to communicate with someone else. I think we've learned a lot about how people learn languages. Aviva Kadash is a teacher mentor for Hebrew. We're beginning to understand that it's all about proficiency. It means that you can function in the real world with real things and real people. And if you go to the country that speaks the language that you've been studying, you'll be able to do things. And Susan Davis teaches Spanish at the university level. It's about saying the right thing to the right person at the right time, knowing what to say. And making the learning real world. You are teaching things for a purpose in the real world. That last voice you heard for the first time is Laura Roche Youngworth, who, by the way, hosts her own podcast on world languages. I asked Laura to give me a real-life example of this real-world approach. I always say, why are you teaching numbers to the kids? And and teacher will look at me like, duh, every teacher teaches numbers. And I'm like, no, you teach numbers for a reason. So are the kids going to go buy something? Are they going to go to the grocery store and count what's in their basket so they know how much money they need and then pay? You are teaching things for a purpose in the real world. And then you backtrack from there. I also asked Susan. I want you to be able to go to the pharmacy and get what you need in Mexico. Even if you don't know the name of what you need, you can talk about the desired impact of that medication is. Steve. Did they use this proficiency approach at Harvard? They did. Our instructor would rarely correct us as we were speaking, even me when I was stumbling along. Or I should say she corrected us, but in a very stealth way. She would sometimes rephrase what we said. How about on your written tests? She did correct us on her test, but she used blue or violet ink, so my paper didn't look so much like blood had been spilled. I do the same with my students. How did you do on your first test? I was the last one to finish, but I got a B plus. Très bien. Even more than the grade, though, it sounds like you are moving down your path to proficiency. You must have been happy about that. Happy might be a stretch. Let's go with relieved. But then, about midway through the term, we had to do an oral presentation. By yourself? No, with a partner. I figured Maria, our instructor, would have to assign one of the students to take on the old dude with the gray hair as a charity case. 
But then one of the students asked to partner with me, a very friendly and impressive young man named Josh Robinson. You must have felt relieved. I was relieved, but then I started to worry. Would I screw up Josh's grade in the course? When language teachers teach in this proficiency-based rather than perfectionist way, it means that students start to learn in different ways, which is another good argument for dual language schools. Here's Dessa Dawson. What we did before was we didn't try to teach through the language. We taught about the language, and we hoped that they would gain some proficiency. But now we're realizing that why not learn it the same way you did your first language? You did pretty well there. So use the language to teach, whether it's science or Whatever the biology or exactly. geography. Carrie Toth teaches Spanish in Illinois. When we taught in more traditional manners, people felt like they couldn't do it, like they were too dumb to do language. And then that gave them a negative feeling about languages in general. But as we're graduating more and more students who have positive feelings, I think it's just going to make the bilingual schools explode. And as Laura Roche Youngworth points out, being proficient in a language can lead to a much deeper kind of proficiency in other subjects including STEM. You know, the kids growing up realizing engineering's not something that only happens in the United States. You're going to connect with people all over the world, work with them, collaborate with them, and it would be helpful if you could communicate and understand them in their first language. Carrie Toth minored in biology in college. Now she teaches STEM in Spanish. We do a unit on water where we talk about a panel that was made in Peru that takes water out of the atmosphere, out of the humidity, and makes potable drinking water for the people that live in uh, the capital, Lima. So it allows me to address that need for STEM and the kids that really love science, but it also lets me still teach in my language. And Lisa Lily Ritter points out that languages are embedded right in the term STEM. Languages really are that T. We are a technical skill, so we're part of STEM, you know, and you, you've got to have that skill of language to be able to go forward and, and use it in different applications. Steve, let's get back to your oral presentation. What did you and Josh decide on for your topic? Josh told me he wanted to be a rapper after graduating, so I suggested perhaps we could do a presentation with me being a radio DJ interviewing him as a famous rapper. He said, actually, I'd rather be a reggaeton star. Exactly. How did that tie in with Spanish? Funny you ask. That's what our instructor Maria asked too, with a very doubtful expression on her face. Josh assured her that it was important music out of Latin America and important for his generation. I assured her exactly the same thing, like I knew what I was talking about. By the way, Josh told me he was going to major in languages. And the presentation went well? Well, we'd rehearsed it a couple of times, but midway through the actual presentation in class, I screwed up and skipped ahead in the script. All I could think was I was going to torpedo Josh's college career. 
Back when it was your uncle's language class, Tony Tyson, a world languages supervisor, says that high school teachers would try to motivate their students by telling them they needed two years of language for college. Today, she says the students have a completely different motivation. Now it's, I want to use it for my career, and, and I also want to use it for my life. We have students that now go out and say, this is what I can do, and, and they're out and about becoming teachers, they're becoming doctors, they work in technology, they're traveling, and they're very much interested in the world. Communication makes it real and authentic to the students, so they feel like this is a purpose, and they, they can use it outside of the classroom, and in the 21st century, that's essential. What students can learn in today's language class goes beyond the language. As Laura Roche-Youngworth says, They're learning the culture, and they're learning to have empathy and understanding towards others, and I, it's just going to help. Bill Anderson, who works with world language curriculums, will tell you that if we really want to be a player on the world stage, we need global languages. And the way they're being taught now is how that will happen. It's also learning about the cultures, the traditions of people. That's how you interact and that's how you learn to, to work with people and deal with people around the world. Okay, so I have to know. What happened with your reggaeton presentation with Josh after you missed part of the script? Well, I was able to reach Josh on the phone, so I'll let him answer that. I've felt similar situations before. I've been in like, you know, loosely rehearsed live performances a couple times in life and so I didn't panic I remember just thinking like okay like what's the smoothest way to make this all seem quite natural <laughs> so he was fine with it keep in mind he's a very gracious young man this is what he said about our partnering I don't always have the chance to work with someone who's you know a couple decades older than me and I'm sure your concern about killing his career at Harvard was unfounded Yes, fortunately, he got an A in the class. And what did you get? A minus. Fantastique. More important, though, I was happy to hear Josh corroborate, from a student's perspective, exactly what you and the other educators are saying in this episode. I think it's super important to allow people to feel comfortable expressing themselves however they can. If you're constantly corrected as you're speaking, you're just going to worry about every word you say as you say it. What language is used for is to express yourself. But when learning a language, you're not as equipped to express those ideas. And so it's it, there's a disconnect there. And if you're made aware of that disconnect constantly, it makes it very nerve wracking. The perfectionist way, in other words. But if you feel free to express yourself and you know that you're not going to be judged for a bad accent or lack of proper structure, you're going to feel a lot better about just trying and, and, and stepping out. Josh has gone on to study more Spanish and other languages at Harvard in classes very much like the ones our teachers have been describing. And this way of teaching, with its focus on proficiency, is proving to have a staying power well beyond the classroom. Here's Aviva Kadosh. Some of these students are very successful language learners. I think they will encourage their children to learn language. And Thomas Sauer. Every time a student leaves your classroom, they're leaving with a understanding of what language learning is supposed to be like. And those students become 
department chairs, principals, and Carrie Toth. We're seeing um, big changes in this group of young people that have had proficiency-based language classes. If you go to Capitol Hill and you talk to some of the interns there, they're bilingual and they've had these travel abroad experiences. And so as they grow, they're going to become the future politicians and they're going to become our principals and superintendents and company owners. And the last word is Lisa Lily Ritters. We're not an extra. We're not an add-on. We're not something that maybe we can fight for to get included there. We are a skill, an employable skill, a skill that's needed. The America the Bilingual podcast is part of the Lead with Languages campaign of ACTFL, the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. Many of the educators you heard from in this episode are current or former board members of ACTFL, including Bill Anderson, Susan Davis, Dessa Dawson, Lisa Lily Ritter, and Tony Tyson. This episode was written by Mim Harrison, the editorial and brand director of the America the Bilingual Project. Our producer is Fernando Hernandez, who also does our sound design and mixing. Graphic arts are created by Carlos Plaza Design Studio. Support for the America the Bilingual Project comes from the Levenger Foundation. Music in this episode, Quasi-Motion by Kevin McLeod, was used with a Creative Commons attribution license. Our thanks to Epidemic Sound for helping us make beautiful music together. Keep connected on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. For America the Bilingual, this is Steve Levine.